Good morning, church. For those of you who may not know me, I'm Adam Hawks, the Director of Student and College Ministries. Uh, at worship services uh, for youth, we call the preaching portion of the service Worship in the Word. Uh, we call it Worship in the Word because this portion of our gathering should be active and engaging, uh, just like worship and song portions of worship. And, and being active might not mean standing or, or raising our hands or shouting out, but it means that we're engaged, trusting that the Spirit is speaking and moving among us. Uh, when I speak, and I know probably this is common for most people who speak um, publicly, um, I get a lot of encouragement out of the engagement of those in the room. And that's something that I'm definitely missing out on this week. Though we're not gathered in one physical location, I do believe that the Spirit is active and that we can be active as we worship in the Word and seek the Lord together today. So will you pray with me as we collectively expect the Spirit to move throughout the hundreds of locations we're gathered in this morning? Father God, we love you. Um, it's hard to make sense of everything that's going on in our lives right now, what's happening in our world, what's possibly happening in each of us individually as we wrestle through what it means to be your church, what it means to be your people, though we are isolated. But Lord, we pray in eager expectation that your spirit is with us even now as we worship you. So Lord, will you be amongst us and open your word to us so that we may know you, so that we may be encouraged by who you are. Lord, I pray that this message today will bring you glory, that it will build up your church. And Lord, I ask that you use me however you see fit. I love you in your precious name. Amen. So most of my life, I lived in a small town in Ohio and went to a small church also in Ohio. Um, my family and probably everyone else in town, or at least that went to that church, had a key to the building, I'm pretty sure. And so we would commonly be up at the church on uh, Saturday afternoons when no one else was around, and my parents would often turn on the sound equipment, and my siblings and I would get to go on the stage with a microphone and uh, sing a song by one of our favorite gospel quartets. Yes, I'm, I'm not making this up. This is true. Um, and I haven't seen them in quite a while, but there are some really, really good home videos that corroborate this information. Um, but my parents were really good singers and uh, believe on more than one occasion they sang the Keith Green song um, using the lyrics from Psalm 51 as a part of worship. And so this psalm that we're going to dive into today always brings back fond memories uh, for me both running around an empty, empty church building with my siblings and sitting in the pews on Sunday morning watching my parents sing to the Lord. I guess kids probably don't have the words to express certain things all the time, but I know that I felt very proud of them as I watched them lead. Um, also, being young, watching my parents sing this song, I always thought this psalm was about marriage. It's actually a penitential psalm, which I cannot believe I nailed on the first try. I'm not going to try it again. <laughs> Although this psalm could certainly be used to seek God's forgiveness in the wake of marital sin, it's given to the congregation as the worshiper seeks to have God's presence restored to them following conviction of any sin. So this is the final week of our series in the Psalms, and throughout the past five weeks of this series, we've discussed what the purpose of the Psalms are, and that's to orient us to God. They give us words to pray when we have no words. There are Psalms of deep disorientation. These Psalms use words of disappointment and anguish that we would think no one should ever say to God. 
Yet the psalmist does and encourages the worshiper to do the same. There are psalms of orientation and celebration which would paint a picture of a child receiving the best gift they could possibly imagine on Christmas morning. They're jumping all over the room, shouting in excitement. As a result, the worshiper knows that this is the right response of God's people to the gifts of God. One of the major struggles of a Christian is to practically understand how God deals with our sin and how we should treat sin. We know in our minds that we are saved by grace through faith and not by works, but practically speaking, what does this mean for us? Clearly, God wants us to do good, so where is the line? At what point are our good works enough? At what point are our mistakes too much? This psalm helps us work through that tension by orienting us to God, helping us once again turn our faces toward his face in the midst of our brokenness and conviction. So will you turn with me now uh, to Psalm 51 as we read together. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation." And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. The bull, then bulls will be offered on your altar. So this passage speaks of sin. Sin invariably leads to shame, and shame leads us to focus inwardly on ourselves. Upon taking the fruit they were not supposed to eat, Adam and Eve noticed their own nakedness. And that nakedness led them to hide themselves from God. Similarly, our sin tilts our heads downward upon ourselves and away from the face of God. See, Adam and Eve would have preferred to cover themselves before God saw them. And in potentially more figurative ways, we do the same thing. Turning our heads downward in shame is, is less of a humility thing, as you might think, and more of a defense mechanism than we might like to admit. Turning our heads upward to gaze upon the face of a holy God seems like too much to bear. 
But instead of hiding our nakedness with trees, we often seek to hide our, our inadequacies with good deeds. David addresses this thought in verses 16 and 17. He says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. I am very capable of doing good things without having my eyes on God. I can offer sacrifices without repenting. And sacrifices without a heart of repentance are nothing short of an ignorant attempt to manipulate God. Look, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with doing good, right? Good deeds are good in and of themselves. But they have no power to restore us to the joy of God's salvation. A contrite heart, however, turns eyes upon the Lord and is moved to action as our spirit is renewed within us. And I love that because that's how David starts. That's what we see in the first two verses of this psalm. David turns his eyes upon the Lord and he voices what he knows to be true about God. He says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. When David orients himself toward the face of God, he's not just turning his face toward God's judgment, though he clearly acknowledges that God has authority to judge him. Instead, he sees abundant mercy and steadfast love. Mercy available in large quantities. That's abundant. Resolutely or dutifully firm and unwavering love. That's steadfast. These are big meaningful words. And David isn't making these up. He knows that this is who God has declared himself to be. And we see it in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. We're going to read this passage. We'll come back and give it a little bit of context afterwards. But this is what God says about himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So let's take a step back. Here's what's happening in this passage, right? Israel had just screwed up big time. They'd been wandering in the desert following the exodus from Egypt. Moses had gone away for a little while, and the people built for themselves a golden calf to be their god. So Moses returns, God's quite angry with the people, and Moses begins to intercede for them. And what we just read is God's response to Moses. He clearly takes sin seriously, but he stands ready to pour out his abundant mercy and steadfast love and faithfulness on anyone who would turn toward him in repentance. You see, mercy and love are more than gifts that God decides to give. They are who God is. Micah, our son, Sarah and I's son, will be two years old in a couple of weeks, so I'm learning a lot about discipline lately. Micah loves to stretch boundaries, and sometimes it gets to the point where he's in trouble. And as I try to get his attention so that I can correct him, his eyes are all over the place, kind of like mine are, trying to imagine people in the seats right now. Um, his, his eyes are darting all over the place, but he will not look at me. He avoids looking at me at all costs because he knows that what he's doing is not right. It's not what he's supposed to be doing. 
So sometimes it takes me grabbing his chubby little toddler cheeks and turning them toward me and saying, Micah, look at me. And once he locks eyes with me, he doesn't fight it anymore because he sees not eyes of disappointment and judgment, but a face that loves him more than he could possibly imagine, a face that longs to see him thrive and enjoy life. He sees a face face that wants nothing more than to restore him. We still have to deal with the issue at hand, right? I discipline him, or at least I try to, because I love him. Do we know how much God loves us? Do we understand that he's not interested in holding a grudge or using our sin as leverage against us like some in this world might? His desire is to pour out abundant mercy on us, to see us restored and filled with joy. But as I mentioned, focusing our eyes on God means completely acknowledging our own shortcomings. It doesn't mean that we get to avoid the consequences of our our sin, of our mistakes. Rather than avoiding conviction, we engage it fully as we trust in the character of God's restore us. And that's how we see David continue in verses three or four. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David knows that God is merciful, but he also knows the weight of his sin and that he's powerless to act on his own behalf. In the next several verses, it is God who is the active agent at work in the, in the restoration of David. The psalmist by no means is passive. David's not just sitting around being like, well, I guess if God doesn't do anything, I'm just hosed, right? He is active in this, but the focus is on, on God, the Father who responds when his people present him with open hands and an earnest desire for renewal. So look at, look at God's action as it flows in the next few verses. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. God purges. God does the washing. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. God creates the clean heart. And God renews the right spirit. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. It's God who restores. And it's God who upholds. The psalmist is being acted upon with mercy, in love. He does nothing to earn it. He merely orients himself toward God and opens his hands. There's this kind of analogy at work, and I'm not really a biblical scholar. I like to to pretend that I am sometimes. Um, But I see this analogy of this outward cleansing relating to the inward cleansing that's happening in the psalmist. Transformation cannot be achieved with ceremonial washing, but we see hyssop, cleansing David in, in verse 7. There's this outward cleansing that's, that's pointing toward this inward transformation that's about to happen. Transformation can't be achieved with ceremonial washing, but that washing points David to the face of God where he can, reserve, where he can receive mercy. It orients him in the right direction. And I think this relates well to us as we practice the spiritual disciplines, as we attend church and worship with one another and uphold one another It's not those acts of participating in spiritual disciplines or church attendance that is our transformation. It is these things that orient us toward the face of God so that he can transform us from the inside out. No one gets bonus points for going to church. 
or by spending obscene amounts of time praying. <laughs> That's probably not a good word to describe spending time praying. Um, or reading their Bible or fasting. Like, there's just no bonus points for that. You don't earn anything with that. Those are gifts of God to orient us toward his face so that he can do this work in us. God gave ceremonial washing for a reason, to lift the people's heads toward him. And that's what our practices do for us. They lift our heads out off of ourselves, off of our shame, and onto the character of God so that we can see his face and be restored. Our practices lift our heads to God, who renews a right spirit in us so that we can be outwardly focused once again onto the mission of God. So there's kind of like a process here. It starts on the outside, the spiritual discipline that that shoots our eyes back to where it needs to be on God, an internal transformation that takes place in us. And now we want to go out and we want to live in mission with God. We want to do what God has called us to do as a result of what we experienced him doing in our own lives. Our good deeds aren't a sign of being good people. They're not a, a means to cover our mistakes, but rather a response to who God is and the grace that he has given us. In response to the cleansing that God has poured out on David, he proclaims in verses 13 and 15, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. A contrite heart turns toward the face of God with open hands. Open hands toward God moves us to open our hands toward others with a similar mercy and love that we have received. In the midst of their shame, God eventually clothes Adam and Eve, which foreshadows what he'll do for all his people. We cannot cover our shame, but God blots out our sin according to his abundant mercy and steadfast love made manifest in Jesus Christ, his son. In this season of isolation, you may have struggled practicing spiritual disciplines or you may be affected by an inability to worship in close proximity to others on Sunday morning. As a result, you may have forgotten the face of God. Maybe your eyes have been drawn downward in shame to your failures, to your shortcomings, to your mistakes. I don't know what God might be convicting you of or how he may be asking you to seek him, but I do know David's story. He slept with another man's wife. When he found out she was pregnant and there was no possible way he could make it look like the baby belonged to her husband, he had her husband killed and then married the woman to make himself look like a noble Israelite. I'm not advocating for comparison, but understand the abundance of God's mercy. This psalm of David was presented to the congregation to orient the worshiper toward the character of God. Let not shame misdirect your eyes, but rather look upon your loving Father who knows your failure and longs to restore you. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, sometimes it seems like a a pretty big mystery to understand the relationship between grace and works. But Lord, it's very clear that there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. There's nothing we can do to make you love us more or less, more 
or less. You love us. You've called us your people. And so, Lord, will you restore us? Will you turn our faces toward you? Will you grab our chubby little toddler cheeks, if you must, and turn our faces toward you so we can see your face and know you? So that we can trust beyond a shadow of a doubt that your mercy is, in fact, abundant and your love is, in fact, steadfast. Will you restore us, everything about us, restore us so that we can be like you in this world and be agents of of that mercy and love everywhere we go. We love you in your precious name. Amen.